Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. What they discovered upon their arrival was almost The dead won't bother you. It's the living you gotta worry about. Something if I couldn't keep them there with me whole, I, at least I felt that I could keep uh, their skeletons. Well, hiya guys. It's us here at the Bad Hi. Taste Crimecast. Oh, Janelle. <laughs> I'm Vicky, and I'm not sure what that voice is. Just having a little fun, you know, since the entire world's burning down around us. It's Coming so at true. you from quarantine. <laughs> if this is your first time listening, a special hello to you. We got a great show for you. Uh, coming to you live from our homes. Well, not even live, but from our homes. <laughs> Coming at you barely alive <laughs> from our homes. <laughs> barely alive. Yeah, there you go. We're here doing our part, recording at home uh, while our shelter in place order is still in place. Hopefully, by the time this comes out, we are nearing the end. Um but not too soon. I'm not One pushing for... can only for... help. <laughs> yeah. I'm not pushing for us to reopen too soon, but I'm just saying it'd be nice. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. Um, so we got a great show for you, as always. But first, let's head over to the newsroom. Fit to our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad. Our news today comes from L.A. County. Um, actually, from L.A. itself. Hmm. The this is actually uh, this news is going to be a couple weeks old, but due to financial constraints that have kind of been brought on because of COVID nineteen, the LAPD has decided that they are going to end a predictive policing program called PredPol which there has become kind of this controversial program. The aim of it was to predict where property property crimes were occurring throughout the city. Hmm. Now, unfortunately, as with a lot of these programs... No property crime happening right now. <laughs> yeah. The program itself sort of unfairly targeted Latino and Black neighborhoods, mm-hmm. which is part of the reason why it was so controversial. But they have decided to end the programs because of the cost of it, which 
it's like I wish it was because it was not a great program, but hey, it's something I guess. Um, they are considering other crime analysis systems, but for the time being, they are discontinuing that. So that's good. I had not heard of Predpol before. It was apparently a software developed by UCLA professor in conjunction with LAPD. So it doesn't sound like it's a program necessarily that is everywhere. Mm-hmm. And they still, it seems like, have not really been able to determine the effectiveness of the program in reducing crimes. But obviously, I, I do feel like a lot of these times when these programs are put into place, they tend to um, have some sort of racial bias in them. I it just, it happens all the fucking time. Like, really, all the time. Predictive policing is one of those things that I'm kind of like, I think it might be valuable if you could do it right, but... I don't know. I mean, that pr- uh, yeah. predictive policing is just steeped in, in racist ideology, so... <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Malcolm Gladwell and his, I know I've been talking about this a lot recently, but his new book, Talking to Strangers, they talk actually about some research that they did in, I want to say it was in Kansas or Missouri, maybe in Kansas, where they they did a study regarding the effectiveness of various patrol methods. And even though an area would be considered technically a high, a high crime area, that most of the crime was actually only occurring on one or two streets within that area. Um, and so they looked at ways to increase policing and they talked about this sort of, it almost seemed like a precursor to stop and frisk, which we all know mm-hmm. is like not super great. I don't know. Yep. It's a good book. <laughs> Y'all should check it out. But anyway, I just thought that was interesting that it's not even due to I think the the groups are saying it's due to public pressure, um, the groups that were standing against this Predpol program, but it seems like it's actually a uh, financial thing for the police department, but I don't know. It's just one of those things. Thought it'd be worth talking about. <laughs> anyway, let's move over to Netflix and Kill. This week we are talking about, it's actually an HBO and Kill, we're talking about Atlanta's Missing and Murdered, The Lost Children. It's a documentary series that looks at the time period between 1979 and 1981 when 30 African-American children and young adults uh, had disappeared or were murdered in Atlanta. Wayne Williams, uh, who was 23 at the time, was convicted for two of these, but most of them were closed after his conviction and have not been looked into. These cases have actually been garnering a lot of attention recently, I think due in part to the podcast that came out what like two years ago now yeah i think but you've had an opportunity to watch this right mm-hmm. i did yeah okay tell tell me about I it mean, stud it's i mean they're still releasing episodes um weekly it's still going on okay um as we record this yeah so uh it's not done yet but they kind of go back and briefly talk about the case and wayne williams uh, but they talk a lot about um, the children with their mothers or living relatives, um, which you don't really get to see a whole lot of. Right. They talked a lot about the junk science aspects of the case with the fibers and the sort of sketchiness that was happening on the bridge with the body being dumped and all that stuff. 
Yeah. And then in this last episode, they kind of started opening up about what they were doing now, um, reopening all of these cases or attempting to try to reopen all of the cases to actually close them because they weren't really closed. They were just kind of pushed into a drawer and never looked at again. Right. So it's pretty interesting. They do pull a lot of interviews from the mothers at the time that the crimes were perpetrated and during the trial of Wayne Williams. Mm-hmm. And then some stuff from when he had, he's been in jail for a long time. So this is a couple of years ago that he was uh, recorded by, uh, I'm forgetting the news channel, but they pulled some of that stuff in there too. So right, I don't think they spent too much time rehashing it. No. But they did kind of discuss like why... What he was, you know, he, it was circumstantial evidence that he was convicted on and why there's a lot of doubt that he actually even killed anybody. Yeah. I mean, so. I think a lot of people can admit that Wayne Williams was sort of a peculiar dude. Mm-hmm. But that being said, I mean, that doesn't automatically make somebody guilty. This is that question of that I, I see all the time and people are like, well, he doesn't he didn't look like a murderer. He didn't look like the, And it's like you can't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can't take that and makes an assumption about somebody one way or the other uh there's plenty of sort of peculiar people who just go about their normal lives and there's plenty of quote-unquote normal folks that will go out and commit uh mass murders so like i don't i it's it's i i think the character flaws are something that held more weight back in the day as far as Mm -hmm. like an investigation goes but uh, this is one that I am very interested in getting to. Um, I'm glad that you were able to watch some of it. Okay. This is that part of the show where you say content may not be appropriate for all listeners. So, Janelle, do you want to tell us what we're talking about today? Yeah. Do it. Um, I hope you're ready. I'm ready. Because we're going, we're going a little bit south, but not too south. To the East Coast. To uh, Boston. To Boston. <laughs> To Boston, you chowd ahead. <laughs> you chowd ahead. Oh my god. Um, Sorry, Boston, in advance. So yeah, um, I've actually <laughs> never really been to Boston. I've been to Massachusetts, but not Boston. I have not so. been to Boston either. <laughs> uh, my brothers and my mom went, and uh, I heard horror stories about the traffic. So I, it doesn't really entice me. Yeah, <laughs> I do. Yeah, like that New doesn't England. surprise me. Um, but I'm more of a go to Salem, Massachusetts kind of a gal. Okay. <laughs> if, you catch, if you catch my trip. Yeah. Um, but my story, I, I wanted to do this story, and I was trying to think of ways that we could like talk about it. And I was like, oh, it takes place in Boston, and there's a lot of shit that happens in Boston. So, Boston stories. Oh my God. <laughs> so much shit. It's pretty, it's a pretty notorious, crimey area. So, <laughs> yeah. But this story is going to take, we're going to go in the way back time machine. And it's going to take place in the 1840s and 1850s. Ooh. So this is before Boston was uh, parking their cars in the yard. Uh, oh, God. Before it was Broey, before it was Braston, as I like to call it. Braston? <laughs> Braston. Braston. Oh, no. Yeah. So this is the tale of the Parkman Webster murder. Dun, dun, dun! This took place specifically starting in 1849 during the largest cholera outbreak in Boston to this day. (laughs) It captivated the city so much so that the news of hundreds of people dying a day was like nothing. Oh, (laughs) sort of like now? Oh, 
Maybe. Huh. <laughs> There's huh. so many parallels between the cases I've been covering and the current times. There really it's is. scary. <laughs> <laughs> now, this particular tale is going to take place in the collegiate halls of the Harvard campus. Mm. And it's going to involve a couple of old-timey dandies. Oh, fancy. Let me introduce our players for you. Are you ready? There's going to be three men that I will describe to you i just kind of love the phrase old-timey dandies <laughs> a dandy man i mean there's pictures that i put at the bottom of uh drawings depicting things about this case and it is dandy rific <laughs> oh my god it is oh it so is so our first player okay. in this tale is george parkman he was a middle-aged man who was one of boston's elite uh, he always wore a top hat and was extremely lanky. I'm talking like spidery, gross, leggy lanky. Okay. He really, really looked like a goddamn cartoon character. Oh my god. He was worth half a million dollars in that time, which equals to $10 million now. Oh my gosh. <laughs> lots of money. Holy moly, lots of money. Um, He was a doctor, so, you know, he had all the status. Yeah. And he graduated from Harvard and specialized in the study of lunacy. Okay. So he actually spent quite a bit of time in Paris, France at asylums, studying their techniques for dealing with people who were considered insane. And of course, you know, that comes with all the trappings of old-timey insane asylums. As I say, there is a lot of people considered insane (laughs) for various, like, not Mm -hmm. mental illness things. Hysteria. Hysteria. My favorite one. (laughs) So that is our first player in this story. Okay. Our second one is John Webster. Now, Webster was a lecturer in the School of Medicine at Harvard. Very intelligent. He was quiet, but in the lecture hall, it was described as him being rather excitable. He was known to involve a lot of chemistry in his lectures, which would be a kind of sort of pyrotechnic show. (laughs) Lots of fire, lots of smoke, lots of chemical reactions, lots of acid. Uh, That'll be key later. Okay. (laughs) Noted. Unfortunately, however, he had a lot of money issues like he was in debt to every single one of his friends um his salary was extremely meager he barely earned anything from the lectures it would not cover his expenses on a day-to-day basis the funny part is he had no money but he had the status of being a boston elite because of his family okay so he had the outward appearance of being part of the rich upper class but he actually was extremely poor and owed every single person he knew money Okay. I feel like that's probably pretty common for the time, too, though. Everybody wanted to be that elite, like, class. And if you could fake your way through it, you were fine. (laughs) Now, our last player in this tale is Ephraim Littlefield. Littlefield was a janitor at Harvard Medical School. He and his wife lived in the basement of the school, and he would not only clean the premise, but he also was in charge of starting fires and fireplaces for all of the doctors and lecturers in their private lodgings. He was also in charge of preparing cadavers for dissection. Um, And as a side job, he would actually procure cadavers for the school for additional pay. Okay. Because it is body snatching times. Right. (laughs) It's body snatching time. Now, we have our three major players in this tale. 
let's go back to Webster a little bit here. Okay. Webster was in the habit of asking for money from his friends. He had no shame in this. He was very open. If he needed help, he would ask. So he decided to ask Mr. Parkman for a small loan of $400 initially in 1842. So Parkman decides, okay, I will give you $400, and if you don't pay it by a certain date, it will compound interest. So it's now 1847. Webster had paid little to nothing back to Parkman and was actually in need of even more funds. So he decided to create his own note, or an IOU if you prefer, um, (laughs) that requested an additional sum of money, which brought the total that he would owe to $2,432. Damn, that's a lot of 1800s money. Not chump change. (laughs) No. Now, he was unable to obtain further funding without putting up some of his personal property for collateral. Parkman was a very savvy man. He knew that he was just going to keep giving, you know, him money and he needed to have something in exchange. So the collateral that Webster put up was uh, some personal property and some artifacts, but also his prize cabinet full of these exotic minerals. How sciency of him. Very, very expensive and, and worth their weight in literal gold. <laughs> <laughs> now, about a year later, Webster was still in need of additional money, and he was looking at anyone and everyone he could for a loan. Now, he contacted Robert Shaw to get some additional cash. And Shaw, being the smart man that he was, asked for collateral upfront before even giving him money. So as collateral, he decided to put up his prized mineral collection. But wait, you say? Uh, he already did that for another loan. Yep, that's what I was thinking. You're right. Yes. <laughs> he doubled down on that collateral and y'all can't do that. <laughs> I was going to say. So it took about two years before Parkman found out this piece of information that his collateral was also collateral towards somebody else's loan. And needless to say, he was fucking pissed. <laughs> As you would so be. So he went to hunt to find Webster to sort everything out. He wanted to know if this was in fact true. Finally, in November, he had gotten word that Webster was at his office, and he decided that he was going to rush over there quickly to see him at his lecture hall in the medical school at Harvard. When he arrived, Webster had actually just left. So he took the money that Webster was to receive from his lectures and left. So the funny thing about the way the school system worked then was lectures weren't necessarily classes. You could attend a lecture um, for an additional fee and it could be counted towards a course or you as a person of the public could go to a lecture for a small fee. So the lecturers weren't necessarily professors in the school. Sometimes they were, most of the time they weren't. So he was actually obtaining not only a salary for teaching classes, but also an additional salary for lecturing. So what Parkman stole was his profits from his lectures. Gotcha. Okay. I was wondering why there would just be money laying around. That sort of makes sense. Yeah, there's a box. Well, he took it from the box office. He went up there and told the guy at the box office that Webster was signing over the cash to him for a loan. Okay, gotcha. And the guy took his word for it and gave him all the money. So Because 1800s people trusted everybody. Oh, yeah. You have a, a an elite man saying that another elite man is letting him take his money? Of course. Nothing <laughs> of it. Uh, <laughs> now, when Webster returned, he was 
so pissed off at finding out that all of his money for his lectures were gone. Um, And he knew right away that it was Parkman who took it. So Webster sent word to Parkman for him to meet him at Harvard to discuss the loan issues. Um, You know, very old school telegram style. Yeah. So Parkman went to Harvard the afternoon of November 23rd to discuss the loan matter. By the afternoon of November 24th, Parkman had not returned to his home, and his family began to get a little bit concernicus. Okay. (laughs) It wasn't until the following day on the 25th when they finally got police involved. They first went to Harvard to talk to Webster, as that was the last appointment that Parkman had made. Now, Webster stated that he talked to Parkman that afternoon, and he gave him $483 towards the loan that he owed him, and then Parkman was on his way. On November 26th, the family of Parkman decided to publicly announce that they were going to have a $3,000 reward brought for finding Parkman alive. They printed 28,000 copies of a wanted notice to post searching for the man. Now, here's the funny part that I read. So they put that up, $3,000 reward for finding him alive. um, And then later that day, literally the same day, Fearing that they would never find him, they also publicly announced that they would give a $1,000 reward if they would be uh, so kind as just to return his body. Oh, okay. (laughs) Just the body. (laughs) So zero to ten grim factor. Um, Yeah. Oh, my God. (laughs) Now, the newspapers ran absolutely fucking wild with this story, and they stated everything imaginable under the sun. They said that he ran away from home with all of his money, that he had a mistress. Um, They even said that a band of Irish hoodlums beat him to death for pocket change. So (laughs) That definitely sounds like very old-timey 1800s news headlines. I can only imagine. (laughs) It's it's very old-time newsy. So the police began actually really fearing for the worst, and they began dragging the river for his body. Posters were given out to neighboring towns to notify them of his disappearance. They started to search outside of Boston, thinking maybe he actually did kind of run away or disappear on his own. Remember Mr. Littlefield, the janitor? Yes. He started to become very suspicious of Webster, because Webster was exhibiting some really, really strange kind of reactions. Being the janitor, he noticed some strange occurrences on campus immediately following Parkman's disappearance. The day Parkman disappeared, Littlefield attempted to go into Webster's living quarters to clean, as he does. But the room was locked from the inside, which was very strange. He never locked his door. A few days later, Webster asked Littlefield if he had seen Parkman at all the day he had disappeared. Now, to Webster's dismay, Littlefield answered that he did see him on his way into the lecture building to see Webster. Webster kind of got a little bit freaked out. He's like, oh, shit, somebody saw him and they knew he was coming to see me. Yeah. So he repeated his story about giving Parkman that $483 sum towards his debt. Now, Littlefield was like, okay, that doesn't sound right. Yeah. He thought that he was behaving super strangely. So he he decided to do a little bit of investigating on his own. Ooh. Now this is where it's going to take a really weird turn. Oh my god, I'm excited. <laughs> okay. On the 28th, Littlefield observed Webster coming into the building exceptionally early. So early that he didn't even, like, recognize what was happening at first. Then he observed him leaving. 
When he came back, he kind of followed him to the door and watched him under the door take eight trips from his fuel closet to the furnace. So as I said previously, a lot of the rooms had fireplaces and furnaces of their own. The fuel closet held logs and coal so that the janitor could start fires in those rooms to keep them warm because obviously there's no indoor heating. This is the 1850s. So... He noticed he was taking eight trips from the fuel closet to the furnace. The fire was burning so hot in his furnace that it could be felt through several layers of the walls surrounding his office. And it was blazing hot that you couldn't even touch it. That is one hot fire. It's a very, very hot fire. Yeah. Yeah. When Webster left for the day, Littlefield attempted to let himself in as he usually does. But all of the doors and windows, save one window, were locked. Again, very suspicious. He always left it open because the janitor, you know, supposed to come in there and clean and take care of things right, and start the fire right, yeah. or put the fire out when he was gone. So he wiggled his way through the window and he saw that all of the kindling in the fuel closet was gone, which was extremely strange because it just had been refilled and it usually takes a couple days for that to go away. Oh my gosh. I already love the gusto on this janitor. Mm-hmm. He is a private eye. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Now, he also noticed that there were small liquid spots on the floor, which he described, and it was quoted in this article, and I can't even, it looked and tasted like acid. And I was like, motherfucker, you tasted that shit on the floor? I have so many questions. (laughs) But just going around licking acid. Well, and it's like, I love that it's like the thought to taste what's ever on the floor, but also that he's tasted enough acid in his time to know what acid tastes like. (laughs) Exactly. So, I mean, that was a little bit strange (laughs) to hear. So the following day, Littlefield decided to take matters even further into his hands by chiseling his way into Webster's private privy, which is like an indoor-style outhouse kind of a bathroom. Um, Oh my gosh. He brought his wife into the the mix and asked her to stand guard as he chiseled through the fucking wall. (laughs) It's a family affair. Yeah, he was hacking through layers and layers and layers of bricks, and it took him almost all day. And he decided that he needed to take a break, so they quit uh, at night. And he actually took his wife to a dance that night, which I thought was another interesting piece of information. It's like... We're going to break into someone's bathroom, but also let's take a break so I can take you to a dance. <laughs> yeah. What the fuck? Uh, you know, 1800s collar-ridden Boston was real fun. <laughs> I mean, you got to do something to keep yourself entertained. Right, but also cholera. Why are they having dances? <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, so the following day he was back at it, chiseling through the wall, and he finally broke through. Now, when he broke through, I mean... It's kind of like a, a a tomb of sorts, right? So it was very drafty in the hole that he created, and he couldn't get his lantern to stay lit. So he climbed through in the fucking dark and felt around, okay? Okay. Let that wash Ballsy. over you for a minute. Ballsy. Heebie to the jeebies, okay? <laughs> yeah, I don't like that. Now, he came to a mound of dirt on the floor that was just barely together and it was covering something so (laughs) this goddamn hero decided to start brushing off the dirt and oh lo and behold human fucking bones (laughs) oh boy okay specifically he found a pelvis and a thigh 
and part of a lower leg. So immediately, he climbs out of the hole and he goes to the closest professor in the building and he says, I just found something. We need to retrieve the police marshal. So he didn't want to leave the hole and his wife unattended. So the, the professor went and found the police for him. So the police were brought back and obviously they started looking around. While they were looking around, they actually sent other officers to go and retrieve Webster from his home. They didn't tell him what they were bringing him in for, but they took him into the police department. Oh, my gosh. Eventually, <laughs> they began questioning him about Parkman's disappearance. And he stated the story he had told before where he had saw him and he gave him money and then he left. They, for some reason, spilled the beans immediately that Littlefield found some interesting parts of a person at his, uh, you know, chambers. In interesting Harvard. parts of a person. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So immediately Webster blurts out, that villain! I'm a ruined man! That's oh what he God. says. Direct quote. Not suspicious <laughs> at all. That doesn't mean anything. No. <laughs> so then he immediately starts going on. Only he and Littlefield had access to his private privy, and obviously it was not him who murdered Parkman. It was obviously Littlefield who was the murderer. Why else would he know exactly where the body is? Yeah. <laughs> of course. Why now, else? while they, yeah, while they were questioning him, the police are, you know, coming across lots of interesting things in addition to the human parts that they found. So as they continued to search, they found bone fragments in the furnace, and parts of it were so hot that the bone was actually some bones were fused to the sides of the furnace. That's oh my how hot gosh. the fire was. Wow. In addition to that, they also noticed that there was deep gouges from a sharp instrument in the sink next to the furnace. They also found within the furnace buttons, coins, teeth, and part of a jaw. Okay. There were also acid drips all over the floor, which we had, uh, you know, found out before when Littlefield tasted it. (laughs) (laughs) And then they came across this chest. So within this chest, now this is the gross part. Like a chest as in like a, like a, like a uh, Treasure chest style chest. Okay. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, With all leather straps and everything. Inside this chest was a partially singed torso of a man. And within the chest cavity, all of the organs were scooped out. And instead in its place was that of a human thigh. Oh my God. Storage. Storage to the max. (laughs) Oh, my God. Um, They also found some of Webster's clothing soaked in blood. And then also just a loose, random kidney. (laughs) Okay. Just a kidney in this box. Just a kidney floating around. Oh, God. So they unfortunately had to call Mrs. Parkman and her brother to identify the remains. And I can't even imagine having to stare at the partially burnt torso of my maybe, perhaps, could-be husband. Yeah. How would you? So. It's part of me is I don't want to say surprised that they would have called him because obviously they have to identify the body somehow. Mm-hmm. But I even feel just like just the torso would be hard to identify. Well, here's the interesting part: she actually was able to identify him due to birthmarks that were above his penis and on his lower back. So she's oh, real lucky. Yeah, because <laughs> I was I was like I don't even know how you would do that if it's just the torso, but that makes sense. Yeah. Um, now, on December 6th, a funeral was held for Mr. Parkman, and 5,000 people were in attendance. Ow. Yeah. <laughs> 
They decided to indict Mr. Webster on January 26th of 1850. Uh, He had a very, very difficult time finding a lawyer, and he began preparing a written defense for himself while he was in search for a lawyer. Uh, Webster eventually was able to choose a Harvard graduate named Edward Dexter Sohir and his associate Pliny T. Merrick. What a fucking name. I mean, so Pliny (laughs) is the name of, there was a Greek, he's got a lot, the name Pliny is somebody who has a lot to do with, uh, like, bunk medicine and, like, old, like, old, old, way back in the days before they knew what they were doing. Socrates style. Yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> when people he's like still of, doing humors. Yeah, he's of that era, Pliny and the humors. Like, that's, yeah. Yep. Yes. So neither of these lawyers actually had next to any experience in criminal law. They were actually more versed in financial law. So he was he was in the shit from the start. Oh, great. Great choice of lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the trial began on March 19th, 1850, with at least 60,000 people trying oh to vie to be spectators of the trial oh proceedings. There were lines that were out of control waiting for tickets to get into the courtroom. Because this was back in the day when tons of people were allowed to go in and watch. Yeah. That's crazy. So in a testimony, a doctor stated that the body had been taken apart by a person with a very vast knowledge of the human anatomy. And here's an interesting part. So Parkman's dentist was actually brought in to testify, and he stated that the jawbone that had false teeth in it that was found in the furnace did in fact belong to Parkman because he recognized it as the his own work that he had done in the fall of 1846. Okay. He showed the jury that he had actually made a plaster cast impression of Parkman's jaw so that he could create these false teeth and he still had it and he showed that the he showed that the jaw fit perfectly into this plaster cast. Oh wow. Yeah, so the defense stated um, that the prosecution had failed to show beyond a reasonable doubt that Webster was the killer, or even how Parkman had died, or even that if that was in fact Parkman. They brought in 23 character witnesses and seven other witnesses who claimed to have seen Parkman out and about around the supposed time of his disappearance. So they were trying to cast a lot of doubt onto this, uh, Mm -hmm. that the body was in fact Parkman's. Yeah. Which, pretty good job for two, you know, lawyers who've never really done criminal law before. Right. Um, At this point, the defense was doing pretty well, but then Webster decided he wanted to take the stand, which is never a good idea. Yeah, we've always had a hard stance on people taking the stand, and it's never good. Almost never works out. Yes, so... Um, he criticized his attorneys while he was on the stand, stating that they were telling the whole story wrong. And then he began telling this crazy fabricated story of him giving Parkman money and then leaving and then stated that he believed Littlefield was responsible for the death. Okay. So sounds like a raving, you know, (laughs) lunatic. Uh, After the closing arguments, the judge stated in a very historic moment, this is what happened. Judge Shaw instructed the jury that they only needed to find beyond a reasonable doubt that the body was Parkman's. Now, this phrasing has become very standard today and actually was a part of European law for centuries, but this is the first case that was that used that phrasing in um, the judge's instructions to the jury. Okay. And it wouldn't be until 1880, which is 30 years later, that the U.S. Supreme Court would discuss and define this term reasonable doubt and allow for people to use it 
So this case was mentioned in that discussion by the Supreme Court about the use of reasonable doubt. Okay. So this is an actual historic case in terms of that sort of shift in phrasing. Yeah. You know, previously people were using terms uh, that were absolute certainty of guilt. So this is a big kind of momentous moment for that sort of change in idea. Right. So they really had to prove conclusively previously that that was Parkman and that Webster killed him for certain. But now they were saying that you really have to have reasonable doubt. Yeah. The jury voted unanimously that the remains were Parkman's and that Webster had killed him and that he had done so deliberately. On April 1st, Judge Shaw sentenced Webster to be hanged. They did try to appeal that to no avail. And in June, Webster wrote a confession. He admitted to killing Parkman in self-defense when the latter had become aggressive over the debt. He said that it was an unpremeditated rage, an act of passion and provocation, not a malicious murder. He said that Parkman was speaking and gesticulating in the most violent and menacing manner, and he had been talking about the mineral cabinets being, you know, between both the loans. And that in his fury, he, Webster, and this is a direct quote, seized whatever thing was handiest, it was a stick of wood, and dealt him an instantaneous blow with all the force that passion could give it. It was on the side of his head, and there was nothing to break the force of the blow. He fell instantly upon the pavement. There was no second blow. He did not move. Okay, so what about all of the, like, I don't know, the body being cut up and burned and so organs removed and such the the crime of passion turned into what he does on a normal basis at his job dissect cadavers yeah oh gosh (laughs) yeah so on august 30th 1850 webster was publicly hanged uh this case obviously was a major contributor to that sort of change in ideology ideologies about reasonable doubt but it was also a contributor to the emergence of forensic anthropology. So this 1850 court case was the first to involve forensic anthropology, forensic ontology, and a forensic document analysis. Wow. So it changed the course of wording in criminal law and allowed for the um, use of forensic anthropology and ontology to be used in cases. So it's very surprising that they were able to do that because if you think back in this time period like dentistry was still kind of emerging emerging people were still like barber dentists or surgeon dentists at this time yeah so the fact that he had the wherewithal to create plaster casts of somebody's jaw and to create um false teeth embedded in somebody's jaw in this manner was pretty you know forward thinking yeah but also it opened up for you know looking at records in ways to identify people huh so that is the motherfucking parkman webster case and boy howdy was it a doozy (laughs) i've never heard of that but honestly it's like one of those cases i feel like everybody should know because of the impact it had on so many aspects of criminal justice and criminal investigation that's crazy exactly there's some pretty interesting um there was a book actually written um in 19 uh 10 i believe it was called celebrated criminal cases of america where this um was cited and a lot of the drawings and the uh discussion of anatomy were brought 
into this book. So if you scroll all the way down, I don't know why yeah. it pushed all the pictures, but there oh, is know. a picture of a restoration of Dr. Parkman's skeleton and then a close-up okay. drawing of his jaw that the plaster cast was taken of. Okay. Um, and then a fun drawing of him looking like a lean and long dandy man. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I was wondering what that was. I see now. Yeah. A lean and long it's, dandy it's, man. Yes, it's very interesting, but I've, I've been wanting to cover this case because it's so, so, so weird. Yeah. But also historic as fuck, so. <laughs> <laughs> okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, Janelle. I found a really interesting case. Um, but I do want to preface it by saying it's a bit of a shorty. That's okay. Mine is a bit of a longy. <laughs> <laughs> See, it works out. Um, yes. But I'm going to be talking about the burnt ziti murder. Did you say burnt ziti? As in the burnt, pasta? Yeah, burnt ziti. <laughs> Z-I-T-I. Oh my Z-T-I. gosh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is intriguing. Um, I do love ziti. We and I saw that and was like, oh my god, this is so Boston. Like it is one of those things. Like, damn. Uh, so we're gonna talk about Richard Rosenthal. Richard Rosenthal met his future wife Laura Jean at the John Hancock Mutual Life Insurance Company, where the two of them worked. The two got married in September of 1991, but it honestly didn't seem like all was well in paradise. One of their co-workers would later testify that Laura Jean had come into work with a black eye and a bruise on her face. Not good. No. And they even confronted Rosenthal and asked him what had happened to his wife. And he explained it away by saying she had walked into a door. But Of course. (laughs) Right. It's like that classic standby. But when he was asked further questions about the injuries... Rosenthal admitted that the two had gotten into an argument and he may have pushed her, resulting in Laura Jean falling and hitting her face. And this is not the only time this happened. Um, the same thing actually happened a few years later where a co-worker had noticed Laura Jean coming into work with a black eye but had tried to cover it with makeup and was like trying to avoid showing her face to her co-workers. Again... Rosenthal was asked about what had happened to his wife, and he again explained it as Laura Jean walking into a door or falling down. I mean, she must have vertigo or something if she's falling down this much. Yeah, if she's falling down that much, yeah. But the marriage continued on, and the two had a baby boy in 1994. However, unfortunately, the baby was delivered prematurely and died only a few hours after birth due to fluid around the heart and lungs, causing heart failure. According to court documents, Rosenthal became extremely depressed after this and apparently 
he also became obsessed with the death of his child. So much so that when the couple eventually were able to have a baby girl about a year later, Rosenthal basically ignored her. Like, oh god, yeah, he was so obsessed with real Henry the Eighth complex. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) This continued long past uh, the birth of their daughter and caused quite a bit of tension within their marriage. There was mention of some particular stress when Laura Jean was getting ready to go back to work after having their daughter. Um, She was having this anxiety that I think is pretty common about having to put her daughter into childcare. Now, I will say, obviously, this wasn't their first child, but it's the first child they have that has lived long enough to have to go into childcare. And I've heard this from people who have our our first time parents. Mm -hmm. And that is like one of the things it's like, it's a little stressful. I don't want to leave my kid. Cool. But as she was having anxiety about this, it's it's definitely not a sentiment that Rosenthal shared. Uh, he didn't even go out of his way to try and, like, comfort or console his wife. Literally at all. <laughs> I mean, well, you know, she's so clumsy. She's falling all over the place. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Rosenthal, as I don't think you'll be surprised to learn, was also in charge of the finances. Yeah. He insisted (laughs) on approving every bit of money that Laura Jean spent, and she would have to ask him for money, like, for the day before he went to work. Otherwise, she'd have to call him at work to get approval to spend money. Oh, my God. I am so glad I am a strong feminist. (laughs) All the ladies who independent. You have to ask me for money, sir. (laughs) (laughs) Now, this focus on their deceased son continued to be a central part of Rosenthal's life, and it just, like, continuously injected stress and tension into their uh, marriage. There was an incident in the summer of 1995 while Laura Jean was gone from the home. Rosenthal had strapped their daughter to the changing table and left her there while he went into the kitchen to grind coffee beans. Okay. (laughs) Great parenting. Parenting 101. Laura Jean found out and was pissed that he had just left her in another room strapped to a table by herself. It's just a baby. I mean, to be honest. It's just a baby. I've heard this a lot. You know, previous to the 90s, parenting was a very different time. (laughs) It's true, but this is like, this is mid-90s. I mean, that's still on the cusp. (laughs) Yeah. It's true, yeah. Uh, Now, despite all of this, Rosenthal had decided that he wanted to have another child, even though, um, (laughs) due to health concerns, this would actually include an incredibly invasive and painful procedure for his wife in order for her to get pregnant again. He was like, fuck it, I want another kid. Have me a baby. Okay, dude. Whatever. Honestly, I was reading this and was like, this guy's such a jackass. My goodness. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> On the evening of August 28th, 1995, while sitting down for dinner, Rosenthal and Laura Jean allegedly got into an argument over an overcooked ziti. Is it supposed to be al dente? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. And I mean... It seems like one of these classic, like, if you're in an abusive relationship, the the classic idea of, like, 
you didn't you burnt my Throwing dinner them. i'm gonna beat yeah. you this is this is where my flip the table comes out of yeah it's a very classic italian man reaction if you don't mm-hmm. like something you flip the fucking table <laughs> yeah exactly that's when rosenthal completely lost it and he beat his wife with a rock bludgeoning her to death what? rupturing her from? eye <laughs> and all of the surrounding bones completely destroying her face beyond recognition oh. i actually have, i have no idea where the rock came from um or but that's not- bones are the worst i i broke my nose and um in a car accident and part of the orbital bone fractured a little bit and it is like it's like your eye is trying to escape out of your head it's like it's yeah <laughs> So that's not even the worst part. Oh, my God. After he completely mutilated her face, he then sliced her torso from navel to throat, removed her organs, and then placed them onto a stake that he put into their backyard. Are you fucking kidding me? I am not. That's beyond domestic abuse. Yes. That That is like serial killer psychopath territory yeah the whole organs being removed put on a stake it i don't want to say it doesn't sound premeditated but it's definitely more like like mutilation just for the sake of doing it yeah it's and a lot of times like i understand in domestic violence that goes to the extreme like when it turns into murder Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times the person, generally the husband, will do things like cut up a face or remove, you know, female specific body parts. But yeah. the taking out of the organs is like a whole nother spectrum of that, right. which is why it's like right. it goes beyond just a domestic violence and, you know, it's just, that's just yeah. a lot. <laughs> yeah. So after this horrible mutilation, Rosenthal then took their four and a half month old daughter and took off in the car and just drove around aimlessly. And then, according to AP, uh, AP News, he followed a couple to their home and then tried to engage them in a conversation about gun control in their driveway. Okay, this is like, he has some serious mental issues. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's beyond just the abuse. Yeah. The, the couple called police, um, and when they arrived... Rosenthal <laughs> told them that, yeah, right. Good choice. When the police arrived, Rosenthal told them that he was, quote, driving around to cool off. I had an argument. I had a fight. I did a terrible thing. I'm having marital problems, end quote. <laughs> I don't know if it was as calm as that, but. I'm sure there was a lot of wild gesticulations. <laughs> I imagine so, yeah. Upon further inspection of the car, police actually discovered that there were bloody clothes in the car. And at that point, they advised him of his Miranda rights and arrested him. Um, In a further statement to police, Rosenthal also claimed that he, quote, he believed his wife was an enemy alien vampire part of an invasion and that it was actually self-defense. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. I was like, uh, what? It just it seems like it came out of nowhere. I mean, while he was obviously suffering from um, he must have been suffering from like depression 
um, from the death of their first child. It almost, yeah, it almost sounds like it triggered a underlying mental illness to like come to the surface. I don't know if that's how it actually works. I'm not a doctor, but like, that's almost like what it seems I mean, like is happening. Trauma can uncover things like that, but I mean, the domestic abuse situation, I don't know. Right. All of yeah. the things together is very, it's very confusing. Yes. He sounded yeah. sick from the start, though, to be perfectly mm-hmm. honest. Obviously, a sane person doesn't hit their wife, you know, that much. Yes. Yeah. So. After talking to Rosenthal, police then went to his Boston residence where they found a trail of blood that led from the Boston house to the woods out in the back. Um, There they found the mutilated remains of a female later identified as Laura Jean. Although, as I mentioned earlier, her remains were so badly mutilated that they couldn't be identified right away. It took like, I think, a day or two um, for them to pull dental records to identify her body. Rosenthal was arraigned for murder in August of 1995 and was given various mental health evaluations. In a report produced by Dr. Hoffnung, <laughs> something like that, she said, quote, While appearing generally competent, there were some observations that raised doubt, including no recognition or acknowledgement that his wife was dead or might be dead, end quote. The evaluation made it sound like Rosenthal was generally disconnected, often referring to Laura Jean as an unidentified or unspecified person because at the point that they were doing this evaluation, they hadn't actually identified Laura Jean via her dental records. And so he just kept referring to her as the unidentified person. Mm. Which is a little like, oh. A little fucking demeaning. (laughs) Yeah. Dr. Hoffnung also testified in court that... Uh, she had asked what alternatives uh, Rosenthal had to pleading not guilty, to which he had said, quote, after thinking for a while, self-defense, temporary insanity, or a thyroid storm, end quote. Which I don't... I've really heard about thyroid storms before, so... Is that a real thing? Um, It won't cause you to go insane like that, but it definitely does... Um, It does alter your... Uh, thinking a little bit but not like that it like what is makes what you is that well your thyroid controls a lot my brothers have right. hypothyroidism so they you know has issues with like um controlling uh your emotions and your yeah. hormones and all of these things um it can right. actually hypothyroidism uh can actually mimic having add and adhd Okay. Um, which is actually really common that kids get misdiagnosed with ADD and ADHD, and it's actually hypothyroidism. So is a thyroid storm another term for hypothyroidism? It's like or is an it extreme like a... reaction. Um, I don't know if it's okay. necessarily just hypothyroidism because hyperthyroidism. So hypothyroidism is an under, like your your thyroid is not producing. Hyper is that right, it's overproducing. Right. So people who have like okay. gigantism and things like that, they have hyperthyroidism. Okay. Uh, usually people who have hypothyroidism are shorter. They have like gray skin. They're always got really dry skin. Like those are like telltale signs that you can tell if somebody has hypothyroidism. Um, gotcha. It's actually okay. interesting because my brothers were diagnosed with AD, ADHD, I think it was. I mean, no, it was ADD. Um, and it was actually, they had hypothyroidism. And um, my brother, my one brother had it so bad that he was within like uh, maybe a year or two of having heart failure. 
<laughs> oh my gosh. So if it goes undetected, it can kill you. <laughs> yeah. Oh my so. gosh, that's wild. Yeah, I saw that and was like, I but don't actually know what that means, but okay. <laughs> it can cause you to, like, it can make you, uh, depending on what kind of, you know, issues you have with your thyroid, it can make you be, like, hyperactive or slow you down to the point where, you know, make you manic even. Okay. And cause depression, but I don't know if it would cause you to kill somebody. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. So they decided to commit Rosenthal to Bridgewater State Hospital for an evaluation to decide if he was actually competent to stand trial. His lawyers, however, had a different strategy, and they had instructed Rosenthal to not cooperate with the doctors giving him the evaluation, which was like, okay, lawyers, am I right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> He was indicted by a grand jury for first-degree murder, where this, I thought this was just like an interesting exchange. They were talking about the plea that he was entering. Sue says, defense counsel stands mute. Clerk, the defendant standing mute, the court will enter a plea of not guilty to this indictment. Be seated, Mr. Rosenthal. Defendant says, excuse me, I did have a statement to make if the court may allow it. Defense counsel, I've advised him not to, but he wants to say something. Wow. Yeah. His, his defense counsel was like, I told him not to, but oh, here we go. He just wants to speak his mind, girl. <laughs> Commonwealth. Your Honor, I think he should be inquired of as to guilty or not guilty and no more. Clerk, fine. Would you ask the defendant how he pleads? Commonwealth. No, Your Honor. That's what the court has already done. I would suggest that no further statement be appropriate. Clerk. Thank you. Fine. Be seated, Mr. Rosenthal. Mr. Rosenthal, you're represented by counsel, and under the advice of counsel, he does not wish you to speak. So I do not want to hear from you at this time. What say you of this indictment, sir? Are you guilty or not guilty? Defendant, I understand. But at the same time, I would prefer to make a statement, not on this case, but on something else. Clerk, not right now. You'll have time to give a statement in due course. He was just like, I want to speak. Give me my, give me my speech. It was just one of those oh funny little court exchanges. That I was like, okay, I got to put this in. <laughs> so strange. So Rosenthal went through many, many other evaluations and attempts to plead uh, mentally incompetent or mentally ill. Prosecution psychiatrists said during the trial that there wasn't any evidence that Rosenthal had suffered from memory lapses and he had a high level of organization a conclusion that obviously defense experts disagreed with. Ultimately, he did go to trial. And after an 18-hour deliberation over the course of four days, Rosenthal was found guilty of first-degree murder. He was immediately sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And that's it. <laughs> that's the <laughs> Rosenthal case. I just, I found that really interesting because you have this sort of history of abuse and then... Just the extent to which he had murdered his wife and mutilated her body. Like, like you said, there's obviously some underlying something there that yeah, just, yeah. So that is, uh, it's definitely not a thyroid storm though. <laughs> not a thyroid storm. Yes. God. <laughs> Before you go to your computer and Google thyroid storm, why don't you take a listen to this podcast? <laughs> Hello, this is Margot D of the Not Fade Away podcast. This is the show that talks about folks from the music world who are no longer with us. We're talking about singers, musicians, songwriters, composers, 
If they made a mark on the world of music, we will talk about them. Past and future episodes include Jim Morrison, Aaliyah, John Belushi, Kurt Cobain, Tupac, and Jerry Garcia. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts under the name Not Fade Away Podcast and follow us on all of our social media channels as well under Not Fade Away Podcast. And if you have any comments or suggestions for future episodes, send an email to notfadeawaypodcast at gmail.com. Hope you check us out. Thanks so much. Well, that has been our episode, guys. Thank you so much for joining us. We do have some events to talk about uh, that are not yet canceled as of recording. Mm-hmm. Fingers crossed they <laughs> will not be. Um, but that being said, Janelle, you want to tell us what we got going on later in the year? But of course, we will still be at the Elgin Fringe Festival, September 4th through the 13th. Tur- Thirteenth, yay! The thirteenth. <laughs> um, we don't know the exact date yet. We'll find that out yeah. later, um, and we'll keep you posted. But the Elgin Fringe yes. Festival is a magnificent concoction of all things strange and wonderful. There will be illusionists. There will be comedians. There will be podcasts. There will be all kinds of interesting things happening. Wait, even a there's going to be illusionists show. there. Yeah. I want to see some illusions. Yeah, there was an amazing illusionist there last year. So I have to go to that. You can get like a pass to go to all of the things. Um, You'll have to purchase a button. Everyone who goes has to purchase a button. But you can find all that information at elginfringefestival.com. And we'll keep posted on when we will be performing our live show. Um, But come out and see us. Yeah, please Please. do. And like we've said... (laughs) We're going to try and keep track of um, and let you guys know if anything changes with any of these events on our social media. So keep an eye out there for any changes in dates or cancellations or anything. We're really hoping not because we would love to get back out and start doing stuff. But obviously, mm-hmm. for safety reasons, we can't do that. We understand. So hope I'm really hoping it's going to by the end of the year we'll be done with this. But who knows? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, the Spanish flu lasted three years, so. Yeah. (laughs) Um, In the meantime, any information you need to know about us, you can find at badtastecrimecast.com, including a place to buy some merch. There's a little merch store button. Um, Getting merchy with it. Getting merchy with it. Yeah. Uh, We're also not taking advantage by selling masks because we don't feel like we need to do that. Hey. Yeah, no. I don't think you need a Bad Taste Crimecast mask right now, guys. I just want you to survive. Yes, I don't care same. about making money off of that. <laughs> no, I do not. Yeah. Um, obviously, we know this is a tough time for a lot of people, but uh, you can also find the donate page at mm-hmm. the com slash donate. It'll take you to our Patreon. Don't give anything you. if you can't. We're not asking yeah. you to. But if you feel so yeah, inclined, it's you- there. If you want some extra content because you've watched everything conceivable on Netflix and listened to every episode we've ever provided for you, there's some additional content there. <laughs> you've gotten through all 85 episodes? Is this yeah. 85? You can also uh, head on over to our YouTube because we got the some YouTubes. stuff up there now. We're YouTubers yeah. now. <laughs> yes. So we started releasing all of our episodes on YouTube. We've also done a couple of uh, BTC corn streams, as we are calling them. You can yeah. watch all of those. Janelle has and done I kinda a cocktails. I kind of kidding about vlogging. So. No, no. <laughs> if we are able to leave our house, I'm going to vlog our stuff. <laughs> okay. 
do it. I've, I'm saying it right here, right now. If I get to leave my home, Ever I am going again. to vlog the shit out of our events. <laughs> yeah. Um, there is an episode of Cocktails and Conspiracies up on the YouTube page with the boys from Cider Scene yeah. uh, that you can check out there, too. So just check us out there. It's fun stuff. Uh, yeah. I think it is, anyway. Let us entertain you, please. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Let's me entertain you. Uh, I think, is that it? I think that's, that's it. That's about it. Until awesome. next time. <laughs> our, our sound and editing is by Tiff Fullman. Our music is by Jason Zakshevsky, the Enigma. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I really need to get that hype button. Uh, we will We will see you in two weeks. Stay safe, stay healthy, and good. Stop bye. spreading corona. <laughs> <laughs> Stop spreading the disease. Oh, no. I want to leave my house today. Oh, God.